My name is Victor Schlotter, and the subject for this afternoon uh, here at uh, Eastern Camp, fearfully and wonderfully made from the womb to the Hebraic world. And um, we have a, um, a look here. Is this, um, we can doctor this tape up. Can I, can I see that one on here? Or doesn't it work on this one? Oh, okay. Well, I'll just look around here. Uh, anyway, who runs the universe is uh, sort of a, uh, a good uh, uh, a good add-on to uh, to utilize this beautiful rainbow that we have to kind of give us a hint to, uh, the, to answer the question. Uh, do I turn it? Oh, okay. This is from. I'm sorry, I don't. Oh, okay, there I can see now where we're at. Uh, Let me start over with that on the beginning. My name is Victor Schlotter. Our topic this afternoon here at Eastern Camp is fearfully and wonderfully made from the womb to the Hebraic world. We have first uh, the beautiful picture of uh, the rainbow that kind of gives us a hint to where we're at. And we're going to go to Psalm 139, 1 to 4. Let's read it together. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways before a word is on my tongue. You know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in. Behind and before you have laid your hand on me, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If my, I make my bed in the depths, you are there. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb, and I ask to for everyone to pay particular attention at this point and put how many of you remember when you were in your mother's womb only one almighty god el shaddai god almighty you knit me together in my mother's womb i praise you because i'm fearfully and wonderfully made your words are wonderful i know that full well my frame was not hidden from you when i was made in the secret place when i was woven together in the depths of the earth your eyes saw my unformed body every one of us common denominator puts us all on the same level Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Search me, O God, as we end the psalm. I skipped a few verses there. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. This afternoon forum is in three parts. The first part 
is uh, a bit of my testimony and background, which most of you, in fact, if not all of you, don't know about all of this. And uh, comparing that from Psalm 139, we go on to a bigger family. God's got more kids than me, more adopted kids, more scattered kids, more hidden ones. And then we're going to have a look, a careful look, at some things that happened in the womb, about four case studies, or more or less. And it's going to be in four parts, and in the end, it all connects together. Now, what many of, you, many of you may have known that my dad died before I was born. Eight months before I was born. I, I uh, go figure. I almost didn't make it today or any other day. And uh, my mother had two little girls one four years old and one two years old. Remember that two-year-old because she's coming up a little bit later in the discussion. And she buried her husband not knowing that number three was on the way. When she realized it, she said, just so it's not a boy. Guess what I was. I can take care of my two little girls, but without a father, I don't know what I'd do with a boy. So it was a bit tough in those days, back in the early depression or in the middle of the depression, a bit tough. We always had food. My father had a brother and three unmarried sisters. The four of them lived together and ran the farm together. And uh, we always had enough to eat. Lived in a borrowed house. I found out later how hard this must have been on my mother. Um, one of the those three sisters had bought this house for an investment, I guess, or build it for an investment. And so they let their sister-in-law live it with their little children, first two little ones, and then the little fellow, me, came along. And uh, we always had to ride with somebody to go to church, to go to Fort Wayne, to go to the town, to go anywhere we were going, somebody had to take us. And again, I learned in later years, this was a bit tough for my mother. And uh, you can put yourself in, in that place. Uh, the one thing good about it, I learned how to work. My first job was 10 cents a week. Uh, my sisters mo used the push mower. Uh, no electric motors and electric mowers in those days. They mowed the lawn for, I think they took turns or something, got 25 cents for that, and I got 10 cents for pulling the grass around the posts on the grape arbor. Um, 
I, we had hand-me-down clothes. I had hand-me-down clothes. This impresses our Papua New Guinea friends, our Papua New Guinea family, that the white man had hand-me-down clothes. Sometimes they fit, sometimes they didn't. Of course, I think there were others that had this experience, but I certainly had it. And uh, then as far as the as far as the um, other things, I did okay in grade school, did fine in high school. No way would I have gone to college. And uh, there's another verse in the scriptures. I don't have it up on the overhead, on the slide. Psalm 68, 5. A father to the fatherless and her husband and a husband to the widows. There may be some widows here. I'm not sure about the fatherless, but that is a true, true statement. The godly woman that cries to her Abba in heaven for help. A father to the fatherless. The new daddy that I had above wanted to send me to college. So money or not, to college I went and did all right. I got a fantastic job with, uh, well, I didn't tell you, yeah, I got a fantastic job with General Electric. Before that, I worked in, uh, after that, that 10 cents a week on pulling the, the grass around the posts, um, I did my own lawn mowing. I eventually, I was underage, but everybody was going to the war, and so I got a job in a hardware store, which I wasn't supposed to get, but that worked out. I still think ABBA provided for it. And then I got into one grocery store and then another, and then, uh, then I learned plumbing, and I got bonuses uh, on that, uh, working my way, as I said, God, adopt, the, my, my adoptive father sent me to, to college and uh, for a little bit extra money, I, uh, I got a job digging graves in the local cemetery. No backhoes, a shovel. In about three and a half hours, I could earn, earn five bucks for a grave. That's big money in those days. So, as I said, the blessing was that I learned to work. And uh, then I, I, I just had this parenthetically, uh, just backing up a little bit for my work in earlier days, but got a fantastic job with General Electric in, where they manufactured plutonium. That wouldn't have been all to my liking. Uh, but anyway, our department analyzed the environment for the sheep and the cattle and the people in the southeast corner of Washington State where the Hanford Works was established. Um, I, uh, Einstein had gone um, in uh, the early 40s, I think it was, he went to President Roosevelt and he said, Hitler's working on a secret weapon unless you guys get on with it. He's got, you, he's got you pinned down. 
And so they went to work at Oak Ridge where they separated uranium. Uh, there's three kinds of uh, isotopes of uranium and they separated them to make one of the bombs that was dropped on Japan. I had nothing to do with that, thank the Lord. And uh, then the other bomb was made from Han the Hanford plant where they shot another uh, atom into the uh, particle into the nucleus of of uh, uranium-238 and they made plutonium-239 and we looked after the environment and so forth. So anyway, that was the background. Then, um, oh, what happened after that? Abba tapped me on the shoulder and says, I got something better for you than this. I, I heard that the big boss in General Electric had his eye on, in, in, the company, in the plant there, had his eye on me to send me back to Schenectady for more training in General Electric. But there was another big boss upstairs, and he also tapped me on the shoulder and said, look, I got something better for you than these guys have. I thank God for that. I went back to study with Wycliffe at the University of Washington and learned how to reduce an unwritten language to writing, and then to translate the scriptures. Well, I better move on here because i got three things to go through, lest anybody get sleepy after the afternoon meal. Let's move right ahead. Uh, we translated the scriptures. It took us 17 years to uh, publish the New Testament in the Angal Hanink language, and if anybody thinks that it is a primitive language, uh, there is no such thing. It has over a hundred endings in every verb. And uh, it was fun. Uh, I mean, it, that's why I was in, in the laboratory. Uh, because I like stuff like that. Some people don't. I like puzzles. I still like crossword puzzles if they're hard enough. And uh, anyway, we, we got the scriptures out in 17 years, along with the panorama of what I like to call the foundational testament. There isn't any such thing as an Old Testament because it's not old. Uh, the Psalms, the Ten Commandments, Genesis, and all these things are still fresh and new and very valuable, so I call it the foundational testament. We had a panorama of the foundational testament and a primer to teach people how to read, not kids, but adults, and teach them. We did the kids later. Anyway, uh, that was, uh, that was uh, what came along uh, next. The, the, the scriptures are now in their sixth printing, about 15,000 believers over there. Uh, we left when they're about half that number, and it's in good hands. The, the work is in good hands. A lot of people think we're still there. I don't run the place anymore or oversee it. We go up to encourage the brethren from time to time, and I shifted off to the south, what we have called the South Pacific, south Pacific Island Ministries. Anyway, the work has grown to 130 congregations, uh, and since we left, I, I have uh, gone all over the South Pacific. Uh, there are about 10 verses in Isaiah alone that speak of praise to the Lord uh, in Messianic times and in the east, um, in the islands of the sea. And I went around these islands. There's 12 island nations, and I got 
Today we have four island nations from the work of South Pacific Island Ministries that stand up and vote for Israel in the 20 times a year bashing by the Islamic bloc. They bash Israel in, in uh, vote after vote. They put up these things to, that Israel's doing this and Israel's doing that. No other country gets this kind of treatment and the world is growing and growing from the Islamic bloc to hate Israel with multiplied stories that you wouldn't believe. I got them all in my file. Some of you do believe them because you get my email bulletins. And if you don't forget, sign up there if you don't get them because I attach what is going on in the world to prophecy. Anyway, um, what was I going to say? I, I, since that, I've gone to not only the 12 nations in the Pacific and got four of them to vote for Israel, rain or shine, in these very, very perverse, uh, perverse uh, uh, condemnations that they put up against them. I can't think of the word right now. I'll think of it in about two minutes. I was told in South Africa never to say senior moment. It's an intellectual overload, but be that as it may. Uh, these countries are standing up for, uh, for Israel in these, these 20 times a year condemnations. And, uh, oh, I've been in a, uh, written four books. Three of them are here. One of them is sold out from this area, part of the world. Been in 50 countries, preached in half of them. Wait a minute. This is not about me. This is about the one that adopted this poor little kid without a father who couldn't have done anything. It's nothing about me. It's about our Abba who looked at us in the womb and knew everything about us from the beginning of time, from the beginning of our days to the end. This is all about Abba. I'm going to my 61st high school reunion in the middle of August this year. And that's from the Bible Belt and there. Most of these think like we do, and the fellow that's in charge of it this year, they were trying to get me to come from Australia. I guess I'm the one farthest away these days. And he asked everybody that's coming, not many coming anymore, less than half, much less than half, maybe about a third of the class, a lot of people have gone on to their reward, good or bad. He asked the ones of us that are left, give us your definition of success. So before I go on here, I'll give you my definition of success, which I sent him. Success is fulfilling the designer's blueprint for your life. And every one of us may be different. And all of what I've done around all corners of the world has nothing to do with me as I repeat again. It's what my father in heaven, wanted this little kid to grow up and do. So he sent me on my way to learn what I might learn and do what I might do in his name. Nothing of me, but success for all of us 
is fulfilling the designer's blueprint for our lives. Filling the designer's blueprint for your life. Well, so much for that. This is a start on what we want to talk about today. But it's all about the sovereignty of Abba. There's two more significant bits, as I said. And the next one is about this 15,000 believers in Papua New Guinea. It's unprecedented. Abba did it. It's not me. Excuse me a moment. Um, the rabbis say, and we've gotten into touch with a lot of thinking in Israel and so forth, and the rabbis say, we've got another verse here. That's not the one. Oh, yeah. Uh, who is in charge? I'm just going on to what the rabbis say. Exodus 13, 17 to 18. They say that there is a mistranslation in our English Bibles, that they didn't get it straight from the Hebrew. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea, and the Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. And the rabbis and the sages say, no way. How many of you know that, well, yeah, you know, in every language, there's a word, a pronunciation that's got two or three meanings depend on the context. And I've, I don't know that much Hebrew, but I know enough to look this up, and I saw where they're coming from. And uh, they say the word translated armed for battle was not that at all. It should have been 20%. Now that sounds like a strange word, but it's not because you get over to the next book in, in Leviticus and you got 20% all over the place of adding 20% to an offering, adding, or one-fifth, didn't say 20%, one-fifth to a compensation. So it's not an uncommon word, and they say that word should have been, they went out 20%. Now, all of us here thought at one time that all the Israelites went out with Moses, but the rabbis say no. So what happened to the 80%, if that's the right figure? What happened to the 80%? Well, the rabbis say, and I don't agree with them, that they died in the darkness because they were disobedient and God didn't want the Egyptians to see their bodies, so he buried them in the darkness. This sounds like a $7 bill theology as far as I'm concerned. So I'm old enough to, to put my own insights into this, and, and I've been doing some checking. There is the Lemba tribe down in South Africa and Zimbabwe. Uh, the Lemba tribe, which is definitely found to contain Kohanim, priests. The Lembas in South Africa. And um, then in Central Africa, they what do you know, they kept the Sabbath before 
the missionaries came down and told him, hey, Constantine says that's the wrong day. So I say that with a bit of tongue in cheek, but uh, missionaries have been known to make mistakes a time or two of, of uh, what's going on. I'm not saying this as a particular point of theology except what happens and missionaries, especially Western missionaries, do make mistakes once in a while. The Ethiopians are known. Hey, now where where these all came from Egypt? I don't know. Because there's various ideas from the offspring of Solomon to a few other uh, ideas of where the Ethiopians came, the Ethiopian faith in God came from. But there's about 100,000 now back in Israel serving, uh, serving, uh, uh, living in Israel as uh, God-fearing Jews. And then we go across to India, northeast India. There's a tribe of Manashe. Again, I think they got it wrong because Manashe or Manasseh in English went north, I believe the new tribes went north and west, the lost tribes, new tribes, new, <laughs> the new tribes went all over the world with the gospel, that's something else. The lost tribes went north and west according to what has been able to be found out about them. And these in India probably had their origins in Africa again with these others, you go across to uh, Myanmar or Burma, Burma now called Myanmar, 7 million Karens who are all Christians today. And they say we're lost tribes, but they're not the lost tribes that went north into Assyria. In what uh, I think that was um, 781, I'm not sure if that's if I got the right date there. I think 781, they were carried north into Assyria, Nineveh. But these guys seemingly came other places. Then there is recent findings. Well, this is not recent. I don't know why the missionaries in Japan haven't picked this up before, but the Shintoists, which I once regarded as, you know, just plain old pagan, well, yes and no. They've got, uh, I don't remember the pronunciation, so I won't try it, but uh, a, a box on poles with a couple little things on top that look like could be angels running around in their parades. What a talking point to these people. Do you know where that box came from? It's now the Shintoist tradition to run around with it. What? What a lead-in point to give them the gospel. But uh, I think just in the last few decades, they have awakened to see that this might have some spiritual connections. And then I had a cousin in Indiana who was working with the Taiwanese, and oh, he was always respectful of what we did, but he never really caught on what's this Israel stuff. All of a sudden, he caught on too, and he found a couple of books about the ancient emperors in China having a God orientation. Not Hebraic, but just plain God orientation. And if you look in the scriptures, Abraham got a second wife named Keturah. He had sons and daughters, and then he sent his sons to the 
East to not get them mixed up with Isaac. And uh, there's some interesting stuff that are just overlooked by a lot of the theologians. Were these the guys that fed some God orientation into the Chinese? I don't know. But the fact is, there's, I, I got a, in my la latest book, I got a chapter in, the last half of the last chapter is called Hidden Harvest. And uh, we might find some things all over the world. Well, what's gonna, God's going to do in our days. But the punchline here, got to watch my watch here to see what we're doing, but I don't think we're any great pressure to move from this room. But anyway, um, maybe we are. Um, anyway, um, looking at, um, at um, the punchline. I took, I don't know, about 10 or more trips from the South Pacific to Jerusalem in the 90s. And I would take a number of these Papua New Guineans. We had the biggest movement, spiritual movement, after Elsie and I got back from Israel for the second time. I don't know, the first time we must not come home directly, and we didn't have the stories of Jerusalem for them. But once they found out that Jerusalem and Jericho and Nazareth and, and all these places were on our planet, they got excited, and that really, really caused a spiritual movement for the church to grow. Anyway, the second time was when it really, yeah, that's when it really took off. The first time, there was not, well, there wasn't anything. I, possibly we didn't come straight home. We went through America or something, and I don't know what happened. But anyway, they didn't catch on immediately. But in 88, they got excited. I started taking these trips. Anyway, 1991 uh, was the second or third trip. And I gave them the afternoon off to rest in the hotel. We'd been gone far and wide. Gave them the afternoon off. And uh, I went over to the Christian embassy, which I've worked with these people as representatives of a Bible, biblical orientation from the Gentile side in Jerusalem. I went to the off a little little cubicle for Bud Burton. He's the photography, and he had all the all the things on on his back wall. It wasn't a very very big wall. A little tiny place. Nothing is very big in Jerusalem. All the pictures that he'd taken that he didn't want to throw away, put them as a collage on the wall with pins and so forth. Right smack in the middle were three black girls. And I looked at those gals and I said, Bud, where did you ever get these Papua New Guineans? Because up to that point, I was the only guy that had taken Papua New Guineans up, and especially girls. There could have been a few, a few uh, government officials or whatever had been up there, uh, up to Jerusalem. He said, they're not Papua New Guineans. They're Ethiopian Jews. Ooh. I ran over to the hotel. And I found three guys sitting in their room just talking. And they happened to be from the tribe next door to our tribe. There's 800 tribes, by the way, in Papua New Guinea. It's about the size of the state of California. With 800 tribes, that means 800 languages. And this tribe next door 
related to, close to the language that I translated as Spanish to Portuguese, German to English, that sort of thing. So they were our neighbors, uh, kind of kissing cousins or something like that. They, they were next door to us, but it was a little different language. I said, quick, you guys come with me. I want to show you something. I didn't tell them what I wanted to show. There were the girls. I pointed to them. I said, where are these girls from? I thought they would agree with me to say Papua New Guinea. They surprised me. They said, she's from Pangia, a district about 75 miles from where our mission station was. This one, she's from Mendy. She looks just like Timothy's daughter. Timothy was the English name from one of these fellas. This third girl, we don't know. Must be from the coast. Then the oldest one started telling, and he wasn't all that old, but he started telling me some stories that, how long was that? I'd, I'd uh, 61 to 91, 30 years. I never heard this one. And he says, our ancestor was Avram Pamu. Now, I don't have a clue what Pamu was, but I think we all might have a pretty good idea what Avram was. He, and especially what he told him. He told us not to steal, not to kill, not to take somebody else's wife, not to tell lies. But the white man came and we forgot all this. They didn't forget at all. They didn't forget the moral side because there was biblical teaching from the Bible in their area as well. But what they forgot was to look back at their roots. Hmm. And it's not only in Papua New Guinea. It went all the way down. It was over in Vanuatu. We found the same thing. There was a, a university, uh, young university man that read my book, showed a... Uh, where is the body? And he wrote to me and sent me a bunch of photocopied stuff from a Presbyterian missionary who wrote about their claim to be lost tribes back in 1700. And they had no previous contact with outsiders, with the New Testament. Okay. So we got, we got genetics. PG as well. Solomon Islands. A lot of them in the Pacific that I perhaps don't know about, and there were places that they practiced circumcision until the missionaries again came along and made them stop. Well, what am I telling you this for? It's the little orphan guy that was sent to, pulled out of Hanford Works, out of the nuclear energy program, send over there, translate the Bible, do this, do that, and write books and go around the world. 15,000 believers. It's not because Elsie and I were so good. We didn't know much about mission work. We had no background training. We had training in Bible, but not in setting up a mission station. We just went. Ironically, I got a couple, two clues that I built our training on and two clues that I built our training on. Um, one was from a um, fellow by the name of Jacob Lowen, who wrote in the uh, anthrop Practical Anthropology. It was a missionary anthropology sort of a book. And uh, 
he said that the Indians came to him and said, the trouble with you missionaries is you're scratching where it doesn't itch. That was a clue for me. That was half of my Bible school training to set up a mission station. Scratch where it itches. Then Wycliffe had another lady anthropologist there that they sent around because things were happening on our mission work and we did not go out with Wycliffe, but they liked us and we were doing the same things and so they wanted to support us. They sent this lady out and she said, find out. Find out what their needs are and fill it with the gospel. And that was easy. It was fairly close to the same thing. And it was fear. Fear of their enemies. Husbands being afraid of their wives. If she gave him food at the wrong time of the month, she had the capacity to kill him. And then he would return turn things like beating her up, not after she killed him. That, I got that wrong. But he would beat her up, and so if, she didn't if he didn't behave... Uh, she would have the capacity to kill him. And this superstition, yes, but the Bible cured it. And, and another thing, fighting with their enemies. Of course, the government tried to put that down, but the Bible also cured that thou shalt not kill. And the other one was, I met the first, I, I met a bunch of guys way back in the early days. I met, met a bunch of guys just standing there, and I said, we came to tell you about God. They says, yeah, we know he's up there. He's okay. <laughs> he's not going to harm us. It's a problem is with the demons down here. I said, you look to him, and he'll take care of them, and they did, and he did. That was the third fear, though I'm telling you this a bit out of chronology, but, but we knew about the problems with the demons, and I can see now the genetics of Hebrews that finally got fed up with Pharaoh and fed up with leeks and garlics and cucumbers and they came walking all the way across India, all the way across Southeast Asia and wandered down to the South Pacific through Indonesia and they still had something in here looking for their papa. And so it wasn't our brilliance that did this great thing. It was the provision the wisdom and the calling of Almighty God that is moving people around like pawns. Hidden harvest. Hidden harvest. Uh, I believe that their day could be coming when all over the world we find people that pop up like mushrooms that have a propensity to find their Abba like he found me. So that's how those two connect, but then I've gone to a third one. I think most of you here know Nick Vujicic. You know Nick Vujicic? Everybody? We're going to end up... Thank you. Oh, we go back. I should have had that up. Quick look at it because she's going to take it off. She's a beauty. She's, she, as I say, she's the nice one. Then, oh, now we're going to this. And we've had this in a couple lessons out there. We've had this pre prepared back in Australia. 
We've shown uh, what I'm sharing. I've shown another place, and it's exactly dovetailing what's coming off at Eastern Camp this year. One of you will say to me, "Why does God still blame us for who resists His will?" But who are you, are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to Him who formed it, "Why did you make me like this?" Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay? some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use. How many had in their Bible classes this morning the picture of the potter's wheel? <laughs> yeah, everybody, was that in every class or just the one we happened to be in? This is exciting because we're coming together. Okay, we're going to leave this for a few minutes or should we go on? Let's go on, okay. There we go. We had another one like that, Okay. Somebody must be telling us something. Abba. Anyway, uh, we had a, the sister picture of this in our class. Okay, Nick Vujicic. About a month or two ago, got to be two months now, got a call down to Brisbane to baptize his brother. Now, I don't run all over Australia to uh, uh baptized people. Uh, Paul said, I thank God that I baptized none of you, but uh, once in a while I get a special call. And I got a special call to go down and baptize Nick's brother, Aaron, and his Aaron's wife, Michelle. We're friends of the family. Nick calls us mom and dad. And uh, he thinks that I influenced him more than I know. Well, more than I know, but anyway... Uh, we're, we're pretty much on the same page. And um, anyway, I went down to baptize his brother. It was not just because of Nick, but because of the family. And uh, this is not uh, overly personal, but I could see, and you can see in a moment. You see, Nick had a lot of need for help. When Aaron was born... What does his parents name him? Aaron. He might be a help to his brother. But nobody asked Aaron. You see how that might hurt? People had plans for me, which I didn't mention before, of what I would be when I grew up, and it certainly wouldn't be to run off to Papua New Guinea. Community can do a lot of stuff to us. And uh, anyway, um, did I miss something here? Um, yeah, I did. I'm going to tell you. Uh, we'll, we'll just put Aaron and Aaron and uh, Nick on hold. Actually, that's the story. We have expectations from the family, from the community, that uh, as we grow up. That might not strike a bell with us. So uh, I, I got to know Aaron a little bit the first time and appreciate him as much as I appreciate Nick. I knew him before as he was a little kid growing up. But you see things like this happen to us in the family. Hello? Can you look into your own circumstances perhaps with a sibling or with your children? There may be problems, expectations. 
By the way, with my case, one time my older sister, that was the four-year-old. I said I got some more story about the two-year-old. I was kind of worrying about this thing, what the community expected of me to be with my mother in her older age and not be tending the fires in, South, in the South Pacific. But my sister said to me one time in no uncertain terms, the oldest one, she said, God called you to Papua New Guinea and he called me to take care of our mother. Don't you worry about it. But you see, this doesn't always, uh, we get a little bondage sometimes without the freedom. Let me tell you before, though, I, I skipped a part here. In uh, 1971, we were at the Ukarampa base, the Wycliffe base in Papua New Guinea, and the leaders of Wycliffe sent around a fellow who had made an experience of his own, who was a pastor of a two or three thousand member Baptist church in Detroit, Michigan, and his daughter ran away from home before she graduated, and they were trying to urge her to do her work. She ran away, never to live at home again. She saw her parents again, but these things shouldn't happen to a Baptist pastor or an apostolic Christian pastor. If you can't take care of your daughter, what you doing trying to take care of us? You know, the scripture says much of the same. And so he went on a search, and he came out. I won't get into this for sake of time. I won't get in, but he studied a little bit of psychology, and then he met a group that ministered in the Holy Spirit to people that were hurting. And he came around to share this with the Wycliffe missionaries. And I heard him talk about healing of the memories and he said, what kind of a God do we have if he can't go into the womb? Remember, we started with the womb and we're going to end with that. If you can't go into the womb, and of course this is what's happened to all those Jews scattered all over the Pacific. Abba put them there. And he's got kids there as he's got kids in America and Canada and wherever else. And Hungary and some of the folks that we've been talking to here. Anyway. He talked, if we, if we don't have a God that can heal some hurts that happen in the womb, and it does, for an unwed mother that doesn't want that baby. And we've got all kinds of psychological problems. And there's more than that, more than an unwed mother. They don't, that doesn't seem to bother too many of them these days. But uh, anyway, but I heard him saying, these things, and I says, I got to see this guy. I said, when can you see me? He said, he said, what, I looked at his diary, he said, what about next Tuesday? Okay, it doesn't, doesn't matter, it's when you can. Then I looked at my calendar, next Tuesday was my 40th birthday. And uh, this is what Gib Ledbetter said about 40s, he said, uh, he said, had he known that, he'd have made some comment the night he was talking. But anyway, um, uh, anyway, I had to go see him. I went to see him. 
on Tuesday. It was, as I said, my 40th birthday. Now, I'm not subject to suggestions. And uh, I wonder if, if um, you don't have the book here, if, what, when, uh, if, the, if there's another group using this room. No, I don't think so. Not today. No. There's nothing at 3 o'clock today, is there? Sorry? In this room? Oh, okay. We won't worry about it. I, I'm going to finish here in a few minutes. So, uh, okay. Um, um, I told him that I was doing what God wanted me to do. But there were people in back of me that didn't agree with me going to the mission field. There were people in back of me that didn't agree with what I was doing, associating with all these Wycliffe people and people from the world, if you get the picture. And uh, I, I couldn't, you can see things from behind better than you can see things ahead of time. I didn't know what it was, but I explained it to him, and he says, that's easy. I found out that he was a Mennonite before he was a Baptist. That's easy. He says, he laid hands on me, and he says, Father, let the chains fall off of this brother. And fall they did. I didn't see any. This is what I would have liked to have shared in yesterday's meeting, but it's too long and involved. Fall they did. I'm not susceptible to suggestion. In fact, it takes me 24 hours to sort something out when something happens to what I make of it. But anyway, anyway, uh, I knew something happened. And I took about 100 steps. Uh, one thing, he knew who he was talking to, and he knew the authority he had, and he said, let the chains fall off the brother. As I said, fall they did. I took about 100 steps, and I realized for the first time in 40 years that I loved my sister. That was the two-year-old. The four-year-old, five when I was born, grew up to be mother's little helper, got all the attention from the community. The little boy without a daddy got attention from the community. The little girl that was two years old was looking both ways. Hello? Anybody you know? We didn't get along. God touched me for good with my sister. Today her kids are as close to us as my kids. And... Uh, Maybe closer at times because they didn't have to put up with me. <laughs> and they're like our grandkids. And so uh, that was a, a total change which would have fit into yesterday's Bible lesson. That was the two-year-old girl. That was for me. And already I told you about Nick and his brother, and I've got two more very quickly. I'm not going to take too long here. We have some very good friends in Brisbane, Australia, that we always stay with when we go there. When their firstborn 
was about three weeks old. His mother was nursing him from the breast in the back seat without a seat belt. Some maniac hit them head on 90 miles an hour, and both the little three-year-old boy, three-day-old, sorry, three-week-old boy and the mother went out the windshield. Should have been dead. They didn't die. She's had four more children, very normal children, very beautiful kids. Four more since then. Everything's fine on her side. What about the little fella? I'll never forget. I'll never forget when the little guy was two and a half years old. Most kids walk about a year or sooner. He took his first faltering steps. And the father looked on him and he said, that's good enough for me. How many of you know God blesses that kind of an attitude? Today, his name's Ori. He finally learned to write a, he, his brain is okay. It's better than most. His motor control is a bit shaky, but he did learn to ride a, balance a push bike when he was about 15. He's not so good in that. He's got his driver's license. He drives a car. He's just graduated from university with two degrees. And he's got a younger brother. It's not sure what he wants to do. And, uh, so there they are, side by side. Why? Why'd you do that? Why'd you give Ori all the brains? And I don't even know what I want to do. Or, why did you give my younger brother balance? And uh, that he could play soccer in high school. It's another one. Why? Um... Finally, my mother. After I had made such a radical change with my sister, I went back to Indiana in about 1976. You remember the mother that lost her husband after only five years of marriage? She was a little bit sickly all her life. Actually, she nearly died when I was 12. I prayed up a storm then, and she recovered from a very serious malignancy. And I loved her very much, but just between you and me, she was a little bit crabby sometimes. I went back in 76, and I knew what God did for me with the chains. And I said, Mother, you know, God has shown me that you've never forgiven God for taking your husband after only five years of marriage. <laughs> she kind of blew up. So I backed off, and Elsie and I went for a couple of meetings in Ohio, maybe to see Jim Herring, I don't know, but uh, a couple, a couple of uh, some meetings in Ohio, we came back, and she said, you know what you told me? Yeah. She says, I think you're right. And I was going to pray for her, and she says, no, I'll take care of it myself. 
See, she was, uh, there's some things, some of you know, some of you don't. That was a different church, and she was not sure that I was a different church and whether I should be praying for her like that. But she says, I'll take care of myself. But she did. But her golden years were between 90 years old, 80 years old, and 90. That was her golden years. And her siblings were around her dying like flies and just getting by. And she was a shining example to them all because God broke the chains over her too. I'm finished with this. Life is not what we do, but Abba, Abba, Abba. And let's just bow our heads in prayer. If there's anybody here that would like, that's got a burden like that, just tell Abba that you want this prayer for you. Father, if there's anybody here that's struggling with a relationship, struggling with hurt, unforgiveness. As in their heart or as they whisper to you right now, as the chains were broken over me on my 40th birthday, 40 years. Sometimes we go around with these things for a long time. Lord, whoever is just whispering to you now to break the chains, do it again. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. I hope I didn't hold anybody up from... Uh, why did you do that?